We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing uh, our exploration of formations of the secular by Talal Asad, we are on page 30, a digression on the sacred and the profane. In the Latin of the Roman Republic, the word secure or secere referred to anything that was owned by a deity, having been taken out of the region of the profanum by the action of the state and passed on into that of the sacrum. Okay, so, so if we get into the etymology of these ideas, the first point to think about is a lot of our categories are coming from Latin and its use under the Romans. Okay. That's, uh, that's an important point because a lot of times when we're trying to understand our Islam, you know, the ongoing question is how does modernity play out in Islam, but also smaller questions, that which is sacred, that which is not sacred. Um, the idea of just using the word sacred automatically puts us in Latin categories, right? Mm. And so one question would be, should we start developing our own terminology and our own categories? Um, this is what we have in big portions of our tradition, but in our contemporary practice of Islam, we don't really have much of any of it, right? So when we talk about modernity, the nation state, all that stuff, um, and you see the way it plays out, like a point we've discussed a number of times, is that the Islam in Chicago, for example, uh, in our various communities, is, is taking on the form of Protestant Christianity, where the, the masjid, the Islamic center, is at the center, <coughs> and everything goes through that. And that's not the history of our tradition. That's church. That's not mosque. Uh, the mosque, yeah, we say, is a place of prayer, it's a place of teaching and all that stuff. But we're trying to make everything to be part of the mosque. and Like a school, a center, yeah. the whole nine How years. was it before? I mean, so it's all networks, uh, you know, where there's more responsibility on the people, okay, as opposed to dumping it all on the Islamic center. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so here, in uh, this, uh, anything that was owned by Didi was this word, saker or saser. Okay. And then taken out of that region, that's the profanum, right? And that's the action of the state. And so in this paradigm, the realm of God was, was pure and clean and holy. The realm of the world was dirty and punishment. And who runs the realm of the world? The state. Okay. And again, that's different from us because this is starting from the perspective that the world is a punishment and human nature is innately evil, and we are starting from the perspective that the world is a place we have, where we have responsibility, and human nature is innately good. So automatically, right from the core, it's a different outlook. Okay, However, <clears throat> even then there was an intriguing exception. The term homo cesare was used for someone who, as a result of a curse, cesare esto, became an outlaw liable to be killed by anyone with impunity. Thus, while the sacredness of property dedicated to a god made it inviolable, the sacredness of Homo Sacer made him eminently subject to violence. This contradictory usage has been explained by classicists, with the acknowledged help of anthropologist colleagues, in terms of taboo, a, supposed primitive, a supposedly primitive notion that confounds ideas of the sacred with those of the unclean, ideas that spiritual religion was later to distinguish and use more logically Use more logically. The conception that taboo is the primordial origin of the sacred has a long history in anthropology. 
from which it was borrowed not only by classics to understand antique religion, but also by Christian theology to reconstruct a true one. The anthropological part of that history is critically examined in a study by Franz Steiner, in which he shows the notion taboo is built on very shaky ethnographic and linguistic foundations. Okay, so if you think of sacred as being somehow related to taboo, what word or words would you think of uh, in Arabic that that would be similar to? To what? taboo? Yeah. Sacred related to taboo? Um, sacred like or taboo. Har- I'm saying an Arabic word. Sorry? Haram? Yeah, so haram um, um, is, would be essentially the taboo. Okay? Uh, and so we have the hadith where you know, every king has his, has his like, sanctuary and the sanctuary of Allah and sanctuary is not even a good translation. That a sanctuary of Allah is the haram. Okay, and so don't bring your goats too close to the king's uh, land because then the goats are going to cross over. Okay, so don't don't come too close to the haram because you're going to fall you're going to fall into it. Okay, but we wouldn't say the haram is sacred, right? Haram, we would say sacred, like haram al sharif and stuff, right? And and so that might be some place where the idea crosses over, but basically, taboo is probably a better word for haram than or haram than than sacred. Okay. And the idea of taboo being there's things you're not supposed to be doing here. You don't have free reign here, okay. um, in the way that you would, in theory, in your own home. Okay, okay continue. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, sacred in early modern English usage generally referred to individual things, persons, and occasions that were set apart and entitled to veneration. Yet if we consider the examples given in the dictionary, the poetic line, that sacred fruit, sacred to abstinence, the inscription, sacred to the memory of Samuel Butler, the address form, your sacred majesty, the phrase, a sacred concert, it is virtually impossible to identify the setting apart or the venerating as being the same act in all cases. The subject to whom such things, occasions, or persons are said to be sacred does not stand in the same relation to them. It was late 19th century anthropological and theological thought that rendered a variety of overlapping social usages rooted in changing and heterogeneous forms of life into a single immutable essence and claimed it to be the object of a universal human experience called religious. Okay, so so he's basically, you know, now he's just talking about the various usages of the word sacred, right? That's very straightforward. And the idea here being things that are set apart from the rest and things that are entitled to some sort of veneration. What does veneration mean? Praise. Like honoring? Praise, honor, special attention, special respect. Uh, there might even be some rituals related to it. So sacred fruit, sacred majesty, sacred concert, so on and so on. Okay. And then <clears throat> he's saying that, okay, it's hard to put, you know, you know, connect all these together, what's common, except for this, this linguistic meaning. Yeah. Then it says, it was late 19th century anthropological and theological thought that rendered a variety of overlapping social usages rooted in changing heterogeneous forms of life into a single immutable essence. Okay, so putting that all that into simple language. Okay, so using anthropology and theology, we found that, all right, there is some essence and that's what we'd call religious. Okay. So, so, again, a lot of this 
in exploring secularism um, is first addressing the issue of terminology. Okay. Istilah would be referring to like the terminology. Okay, continue. The supposedly universal opposition between sacred and profane finds no place in pre-modern writing. In medieval theology, the overriding antinomy was between the divine and the satanic, both of them transcendent powers, or the spiritual and the temporal, both of them worldly institutions, not between a supernatural sacred and a natural profane. Okay, so, so what's the point here? This idea of sacred and profane as a division um, is modern. Okay. Uh, we don't find it taking place. Rather, we find the divine and the satanic. Okay. And that's Christianity. Okay. Uh, for us, how would it be? Okay. Because in Christianity or in medieval Christianity, it's a battle between God and the devil. So how would we categorize things in our world? And then he's saying also the spiritual and the temporal. Okay. Would it be like yourself? And? And obedient? Um, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> like, what would be I, I'm categories? Keep going, but I know how this story ends. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, well, this is why you're wrong. <laughs> so, so one can be um, the the uh, uh, obedience and the satanic, right? So, not that different than what you're saying. Yeah. Okay? In the sense, what you're saying is basically obedience versus the nafs. Yeah. Right, that's what you're, you're saying. Um, but the problem is that you also have shaitan in there too. Right, okay? right, right. Um, or it can be uh, the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and shaitan. Those, mm -hmm. those are like the two opposites. Okay? I mean, and what does the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, represent? Connection to the divine, complete submission to the divine. Mm -hmm. And what does shaitan represent? What do you represent? Complete submission to yourself. Essentially submission to yourself, right? Even though he believed in the divine. Right? Or perhaps we could use the categories at the beginning of Al-Baqarah where you have the people of Taqwa, the people of Kufr, the people of Nifaq, right? Um, explore that. Uh, how would it be categorized? It doesn't have to be binary. Yeah. I was like, wait, you're not going to tell us? <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right, yeah, because when we went over, I mean, in Surah Bakra, it doesn't give you, like, two outlooks, this yeah. or that. It's, there's a lot of, I mean, you could be a hypocrite, you mm -hmm. can have Iman and mm -hmm. not express it. In terms of action, what would be the categories, the big categories? Muslim and non Halal Haram. Halal Haram, oh. right? And then things that are in between. Um, but that's the realm of action. That's not the realm of location, that's not the realm of person, that's not the realm of, of worldview. Um, but the point is that it doesn't have to be binary. Even halal and haram uh, is not the real binary. What's the binary? It's haram, or I mean, it's, not, it's haram, and, and far will be the, the, the other extreme, right? But then you have everything that's in between, right? Um, okay, continue. In France, for example, the word sacré was not part of the language of our ordinary Christian life in the Middle Ages and in early modern times. It had learned uses by which reference could be made to particular things, vessels, institutions, the college of cardinals, and persons, the body of the king. But no unique experience was presupposed in relation to the objects to which it referred, and they were not set apart in a uniform way. The word and the concept that mattered to popular religion during this entire period, that is to practices and sensibilities, 
was sent sainted a beneficent quality of per certain persons and their relics closely connected to the common people and their ordinary world so what does that word look like english language word family saint yeah and so so basically what is he saying in france it's not part of the language of ordinary life um but it did uh, have learned uses, meaning something is an es essentially sacred. Something gets made sacred. This is also interesting. Um, you know, I remember growing up when I would hear about holy water, you know, whether it's like in exorcism movies or church rituals and such, I thought it was some special water. But what is it? Water that's been blessed, right? Yeah, but what does it mean, water that's been blessed? There's some, like... Like what does someone do? They said a prayer over Yeah, yeah, basically you're saying some prayer over regular water, right? Um, I don't know if it's specially purified or distilled water, but essentially you're making prayer over it. Uh, would you call Zumzum holy water? I don't know if I'm... No, not I by that definition? It, I just yeah. call it Zumzum. Are we yeah. by another definition maybe, but you know what I'm so saying? So give me another definition. I might have when I was younger. Like when I was younger, yeah. I definitely thought of it yeah, sure, totally as good. holy water. Yeah. But now I just think like... I see it as like a water that got. It's just like, it's just a blessing, okay. Right, like, and it has a special like meaning because of the story that came from Zum okay. Zum, and it might have whatever it might be. Okay. This, so yeah, yeah. Like for yeah. me, it's not something like the the nature of Zum Zum yeah. is removed from anything a human being like a, someone a human did to it to make it holier. Okay, fine. It's like something. chemically, it's still water. Okay. Right. Again, something so then, it? why is it why is it that like you know we'll keep zum zum in? Oh man, we keep zum zum like fine wine and like yeah, yeah literally we right. you know yeah, I got these I got these I, bottles of zum zum that I just keep here. You know who knows when the issue will come up for me to to use it. I don't know really what to, that's zum zum. Yeah. That's yeah. What would you like? Use students it for? will go on Omran and Hajj and stuff. Go bring me zum zum. Yeah. And then I'll just save it. Yeah. What would you What would you use it for? I don't know. No, I'm saying, what do we use? Zum -Zum I don't know, but that? I have Zum Zum at home, too. It's yeah, just there. I mean, we all have it, right? You know, in some capacity. <laughs> I drink it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Over, yeah, over, you're thirsty like that. Dude, I, I, I did it, like, I just, I just need some water. No, I, I, I did, like, someone said, something about Dua, someone said that, so they were like, your Dua's accepted if you drink There's a, yeah, there's, uh, there's a, a narration that, you know, Zum Zum is what you pray for it to be. Yeah. And so yeah, every time I my grandma had a whole bunch. So I whenever I went to my aunt's house, it was my aunt's house. So I would just be like, oh, I need this. Someone asked me for the. I was like, right, let's go, let's get it. <laughs> you know. So. So what? What is what point? is something for us? It's just water, man. The <laughs> <laughs> so, old prophet told us there's some water here. We're like, I right, we're gonna drink it. Like, okay. So then let's change it. Uh, it is. I do think a lot of people see it as. I mean. Okay. It is treated like holy water, right? Okay. It's treated. I mean, I don't know how holy water is treated, but yeah, treated really as like uh -huh. something very special uh -huh. to be kept and like. But, but I don't know why. I, we but just do but it. we are saying that the prophet, peace be upon him, is saying that yeah. I mean that zamzam is special in the sense that you know zamzam is what you pray for it to be. Yeah. Right. And so then the question becomes: Okay, how is zamzam different than other waters? So, Lake Michigan water, I mean, in your mind, Lake Michigan water, you think of it differently than you think of Zumzum. Right. Right? So, the water that comes in your faucet, you think of it differently than you think of Zumzum. And is it any reason other than the fact that it's so easy for us to get Lake Michigan water? 
that is just I think you know, so. it's Perhaps, so commonplace. But yeah, but the story of that this, of Zumzum, I think, definitely adds to its value okay. you place on it. I mean, like, but if what if Zumzum was like the water that like you in know, your faucet? Yeah, in your faucet that like your this the no. I'm not saying the intrinsic used it like yeah. intrinsic quality of the water. Like, would you okay. shower with Zumzum water? Like, that's the question, <laughs> right? But that's I mean, when you go to the Hutum. Uh, that's what you see people doing. They'll bring clothes and they'll start washing it in Zumzum, right? Um, uh, so what I'm suggesting is, okay, number one, uh, Zumzum, there is something special because of the story behind Zumzum, right? Number two, uh, the prophet, peace be upon him, is speaking of Zumzum as this special water. Okay? There's multiple narrations about special qualities of Zumzum. Yeah, which distinguish it from the, uh, all the other waters. And that automatically puts it above all the other ways to look at Zumzum. Uh, but another point is the fact that, especially when you're away from Arabia, you do look at Zumzum as precious in part because it's rare. Right? Yeah, sure. I can probably go up or down Devon Avenue and find some stores that are selling Zumzum. Of course, my question would be, all right, is this really Zumzum, <laughs> right? I mean, is it pure Zumzum? What is it? Because It's, of, cut, it's cut with Lake Michigan. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> right? And, and, and so uh, there is the, uh, we do value it because we have a little of it in contrast to how readily available Lake Michigan water is. And that automatically, in my mind, makes it taste better, mm. right? Um, but there's something symbolic that we associate, some sort of purity that we associate with Zumzum. Mm. In Sunday school, some kid told me, like, he was like, it tastes better than Coke. And I thought, <laughs> I was like, no way, water that tastes better than Coke. Chilled Zumzum is pretty awesome. And then I had chilled, I had Zumzum, and I, and, I, and I was an adult, and I was like, this tastes nothing like Coke. I was so mad. I was like, he lied to me. Yeah. He's a liar. <laughs> so in any case, but yeah, uh, I think chilled zum zum is delicious. That, I, think that, I think that is like a Coke marketing executive's wet dream, like someone saying that, like about. You know, yeah, I, let's, uh, let's uh, think about the language Coca-Cola that we're story. using here. Yeah. I have a Coca Cola story. I don't know if everyone, the whole world needs to hear it, but it's pretty good. Okay, we can save it for some other time or something. Uh, like uh, uh, yeah. uh, Nather is probably listening to this and recognizing your voice. He probably wants to hear the story. You can tell I him. I think Nather heard it. Hi, Nather. Okay. All right, let's continue then. So, so we're raising this question, essentially, of categories. So much of this whole conversation of this book is how does, uh, like, you know, that which we have in society traces itself back to categories, which traces itself back to terminology. Yeah. Okay. The word sacred becomes salient at the time of the revolution and acquires intimidating resonances of secular power. Thus, the preamble to the Declaration de Droit de la Homme <laughs> speaks. Yeah. So, uh, basically, the Declaration of the People of the Land. Spe- speaks of droit naturals inalienables, inalienables at sacred. So, like nature and natural people, and then that which is inalienable, that which is sacred. The right to property is qualified sacred in Article 17. Um, L'Homor Sacre de la Part part 3 is a common 19th century expression. Clearly the individual experience denoted by these usages and the behavior expected of the citizen claiming to have it were quite different from anything signified by the term sacred during the Middle Ages. It was now part of the discourse integral to functions and aspirations of the modern secular state in which the sacralization of individual citizen 
and collective people expresses a form of naturalized power. Okay, so now we see how it's being used uh, for to assert political aims. So this is 1789. This is the French Revolution. And so in the same way in the Declaration of Independence, we have what? These inalienable rights. That's essentially what we're talking about here. Right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And so here, that which is sacred is the right to property. Okay. And, and so what else is that saying? That <clears throat> the right to property or the ownership of property in this time in history is a statement of power, right? Today, uh, at this moment with our contemporary economy, which is based on dollars uh, or, or, or cash currency, um, it's not the question of how much land do you own. If you own any land, it's how much money do you have, right? Whereas prior to this era, it could have been how much gold you have, but especially how much land do you own, okay? That is the illustration of power. That is the illustration of strength. But was that something uh, unique to, like, Europe? I think it's us, too, oh. right? Uh, what was interesting, and I think some countries like Iran um, um, and some of our countries over the histories, uh, if you were either in the military or you were a scholar, when you'd go into retirement, you'd be given a certain plot of land, mm -hmm. right? Almost like that was your, your 401k, right? Um, and the idea being that, I mean, built into the idea of owning land is, is potentially either agriculture or livestock. So you can theoretically sustain yourself, right? Or you'd have the means to hand down something from generation to generation. Francois Isambert has described in detail how the... Oh, I'd also say, but that's definitely the, the case in many parts of the Muslim world today. I mean, much of power in Pakistan is, is literally exactly like Europe in in the middle ages mm. right it's you have these landowners that you know that have all these people working for them for textile firms i mean many of the i mean it's like almost it seems almost like the vast majority of of heads of state in pakistan if they weren't military they were essentially textile uh, families oh wow yeah francois isenberg has described in deja how the durkheimian school drawing upon robertson smith's notion of taboo as a typical form of primitive religion, arrived at the scholarly concept of the sacred as a universal essence. The sacred came to refer to everything of social interest, collective states, traditions, and, and sentiments that society elaborates as representations, and was even said to be the evolutionary source of cognitive categories. The sacred, constituted first by anthropolo anthropologists and then taken over by theologians, became a universal quality in hidden universal quality hidden in things and an objective limit to mundane action. The sacred was at once tran a transcendent force that imposed itself on the subject and a space that must never, under the threat of dire consequence, be violated, that is, profaned. In brief, the sacred came to be constituted as a mysterious, mythic thing, the focus of moral and administrative disciplines. Okay, so this is, this is adding another interesting dimension. So... <clears throat> Emile Durkheim, the guy who's mentioned at the bottom of page 32, he's one of, another one of the fathers of modern sociology. He used to study uh, religion, but he used to study the anthropological studies of religion. So he'd go, he didn't like actually look at you know, people, he'd look at studies done by other people, identifying these or those people as primitive. And some of that was purely white Eurocentric, looking at various populations as primitive. Nevertheless, 
you know, they're talking, they're splitting everything between sacred and profane. Okay. And what also is the case is now you begin to see sacred being somehow connected with something mysterious and mythic. Okay. Remember, we started with myth. Okay. And so now myth is getting associated with the sacred. Like our question about Zumzum. Part of uh, Zumzum is, for lack of a better term, the myth, the story behind it. Okay. That there is something mysterious uh, in terms of how we look at Zumzum. Okay. I mean, you know, we could do all kinds of experiments, like, you know, whether it's people who are said to be possessed by jinns, you know, make them drink Zumzum, does it do anything? I mean, that's probably already been done. But, like, all right, you have a bunch of non-Muslims, and make them drink Zumzum, and then have them listen to Quran, see if anything happens. These would be interesting experiments, right? And we might discover nothing happens, right? Or maybe something will happen, right? We but, can do it in his class. No, just yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. These are my TAs. Yeah. <laughs> They'll be manning on water. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but the point is that something mysterious and mythic gets associated with the sacred. Just like with the Kaaba, right? Um, it's, I mean, it's going to lose its meaning uh, on the internet, but I think for any Muslim, when you look at a picture of the Kaaba on the internet without its cover, without its kiswa, and you just literally see it as a cube made out of bricks, it, like, it's kind of jarring. Have you guys seen those photos? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. I remember it. It's kind of eerie. Yeah. Like, I don't know, something like primordial about it. Yeah, exactly, right? And, and then when you actually touch it, it's cold bricks, right? Uh, I had the same experience touching the Dome of the Rock, right? The, I mean, the, the structure itself. And you touch it, and why would you think it's anything other than cold stone? Because there's the mythic quality, but it just feels like cold stone. Has it always been the black black cloth over it, or they did they ever had different colored cloths? Well, I mean, Hutch season they have a white uh, part of it is white. Oh really? Right? Yeah, um, but I'm sure in history they've had other colors. A lot of these colors that we associate with Islam are more related to various periods in Islamic history. Uh, yeah, right. I I remember uh, Shaykh Joe Bradford saying something. You know, like people associate the Green Dome. With uh, Masjid al Nabawi, he's like, yeah, you know, that dome has been like yeah. blue yeah. and all these different colors. Mm-hmm. But well, one other thing I was going to say about the Kaaba is, um, I think that's all, one other way to sort of, I think for me, is, is kind of like you get that experience is when you hear that it's been destroyed and rebuilt. Mm-hmm. Like for Muslims, that's like, the, you know, because yeah. it's like this impenetrable, like, you know, like indomitable thing. And then mm-hmm. everybody, it got destroyed, they built it again. And yeah. like, you know. <clears throat> what happens when you, when you study a lot of history is that it wipes out a lot of that mythic quality to a lot of these things, right? Whether you study the era of the Sahaba and you see uh, how human they actually were, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that is not an insult. It's actually look at them, uh, that's actually looking at them with more appreciation. Mm-hmm. That as humans, they were still able to accomplish all the things that they were. Um, you know, the Kaaba uh, uh, probably has all kinds of qualities, maybe, uh, but it is also still uh, a small building made of bricks. The Kaaba at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, was not even shaped like the Kaaba that we have today. What? Right. Um, the the Kaaba at the time of Ibrahim alayhi salam was not shaped like that. Yeah. How, how are they shaped? With Ibrahim so, alayhi salam, had that, that little use. So, so the Hatim, well, the Hatim uh, was, yeah, the Kaaba, think of the Kaaba not so much as a cube, but think of it as an open rectangle. Like uh-huh. basically like walls, uh-huh. right? 
yes, yeah, uh, stretching out into that into that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, how was it in Prophet's time? So Prophet's time, it was sort of like that, but then they made the walls higher. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I mean, would there be a need for a roof? Right. I mean, why are they making the walls higher? Because people are going in and jumping over and stealing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so, also like the use of the color blue. A lot of the use of the color blue and a lot of these things, uh, blue is considered to be very, very special just because it was so rare. And, and then there's this plant, lapis lazuli, which you find all over Afghanistan, which is where they're getting a lot of blue all across the world, or all across, I should say, Europe, North Africa, and such. Um, but yeah, we associate particular colors as sacred, and part of it is because we just don't know the actual story. Well, what was blue? What was blue? Well, I mean, the, uh, uh, so blue you'll see uh, seems to not so much speci- not not so much specifically in Makkah Medina type places, mm-hmm. uh, but the blue of of Aqsa or of the Dome of the Rock, mm-hmm. and then you move further out, you see you see a lot of uses of blue. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, when did the Kaaba become in its current like? That I don't even know. I mean. Um, Sammy Ngawi has a whole dissertation on this, uh, which, uh, I haven't read, but, uh, he does the research, but mm-hmm. I'm guessing probably not more than 200 years, 300 years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, because it, it got flooded, like, in the 1800s or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm saying in its current shape, mm-hmm. it's like a cube. Yeah. That's insane. That's a little bit like that. I think, sure. you know, also, uh, to sort of, Wait, the flip that, side that's of that. Trippy. The flip side of Let's that... Let's say it's even a thousand years, right? It's still... Yeah, it's still... Yeah. The flip side of that, for me, I think I find some solace in knowing that about mm-hmm. about it. Like, I know, like, on a surface level, that's jarring. That's like, you know, we've made it this sacred mm-hmm. thing. But I think on the flip side, it's also... Like, I don't know how to communicate it well, but I feel like that's also... It's... I think it's something that I appreciate. That, like, knowing that... You know, like it's it. I think it's something that's essential to our our faith from the very beginning, where you were talking about how the Muslims had to change qiblas, right? Well, Ismanta says directly, he's like, it's not you know what you're facing, it's what's in your heart. So mm-hmm. like, it brings it back to you ultimately. Like, you're focusing on this thing is just a way for you to focus on yourself mm-hmm. and focus on your your mm-hmm. like, you know, purity and stuff. Yeah, I would modify your point just only slightly, and that is that. Yeah, uh, uh, the Kaaba is not your heart. Yeah, uh, your heart is your heart, but the Kaaba is still there, not purely as um, meaning the history and the myth of the Kaaba are still part of the, the Kaaba. That's what I mean. Right? Like that, there. It's not this like By design. both. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, cause, meaning because a lot of the 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 mystery that we associate with the Kaaba is the sheer fact of its covering. Yeah. 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 Was it always covered? Uh, I think it was covered all the way into uh, pre-Prophet uh, Muhammad times, peace be upon him. Um, uh, as far as the black, uh, when I'm speaking of the Kaaba as we see today, I'm also speaking of black Kiswa, yeah. right? Um, uh, um, I, mean, I mean, I think it's fair to assume that, okay, the gold ayahs put onto it, that's a, a recent phenomenon. Yeah. Right? I mean, literally out of gold string. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that stuff I'm saying doesn't go back that far. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was other colors. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I read somewhere it was brown at one point. The cloth, I don't know. I don't remember, yeah. But the point being for our purposes is that, yeah, we, we have this 
mythic association with the Kaaba. It's, uh, have you guys done Omar or Hajj? No. Okay. One of the interesting no. things, inshallah, one of the interesting things is because we apply so much meaning to it, even when you're there, it's like this simultaneously, it's like, okay, here it is physically right in front of me. And yeah, the other hand, wow, here it is right in front of me. Mm. And, and then you see this in the tawaf. If you're standing watching people doing the tawaf around it, because you can't see the base, it really looks like the Kaaba's floating. Right? Because oh. you have this huge crowd of people, and they're in constant movement. Yeah. It literally looks like the Kaaba's just up there floating. You know? Wow. Who knows in the future they might have it like that. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. So, uh, the key point being that the sacred gets associated with mystery and myth. Okay. It was in the context of an emerging discipline of comparative religion that anthropology developed a transcendent notion of the sacred. An interesting version of this is found in the work of R.R. R. Merritt, who proposed that ritual should be regarded as having the function of regulating emotions, especially in critical situations of life, an idea that enabled him to offer a well-known anthropological definition of the sacraments. For anthropological purposes, he wrote, let us define a sacrament as any rite of which the specific object is to consecrate or make sacred. More explicitly, this means any rite which, by way of sanction or positive blessing, invests a natural function with a supernatural authority of its own. Okay, so this is especially when we think of the sacraments in the church. There's a number of things, a number of steps that you take that are called sacraments. Okay? That any normal Catholic, for example, will not say you're eating a cracker. You're not eating, you're not drinking wine, you're not drinking juice. Even in their language, even in their understanding, even in the meaning for it, you're partaking of the body and the blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. right? And so this is what he's saying, that a sacrament is when you're taking something and you're making it sacred. Okay? And thus, what are you doing? You are taking something that's a natural, common uh, practice, eating, drinking, and then it says you're investing with supernatural, supernatural authority. Okay. Uh, some close things like that um, would be, for us would be the slaughter with Eid al-Adha. Right? Um, I don't know that we have too many other ones. Right? But we do have ritual purity versus scientific purity. Okay. So this carpet, from a ritual purity perspective, meaning from a... From a Tahara thick perspective, this is fine for me to pray on, mm -hmm. right? Would you eat on this? No, right? Um, but for a ritual perspective, this is fine, mm -hmm. okay? You know, I can pray on a lawn, right? Um, uh, why can't I pray in a bathroom? The bathroom's probably, uh, the bathroom floor is probably just as clean as this. Because it's been defined ritually as dirty, right? So, so the point being that a bathroom floor in an American bathroom, an American household bathroom, is probably, you know, scientifically in terms of germs, much cleaner than many, many places that we're allowed to pray in. But that's not the definition of ritual purity, okay? And so the point is that why is this ritual pure and, and that not? Um, that's how it's been prescribed, by the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay, continue. This notion of the sacrament as an institution designed to invest life cycle crises, mating, dying, and so forth, with supernatural authority, of its being essentially a religious psychotherapy, as Merritt also puts it, is presented as having general comparative application. 
But it stands in marked contrast, for example, to the medieval Christian concept of sacrament. Okay, so before getting to the sacrament point, religious psychotherapy. This is another really important point. Like, uh, okay, textbook Islamic uh, prescriptions for when someone dies. What do you do? Janaza. So janaza, which includes what? You wash the body. Wash the body. What else? So okay, so so wash the body should be done by same gender uh, family member, right? Right. right yeah. um, and then um, you wrap the body into two, you know, unstitched sheets, mm-hmm. and then as soon as and you do all this as soon as possible, and then you you bury the body, and then you have uh, or and then uh, in that process or just before burial, you will have the actual janaza prayer, which literally takes about sixty seconds, if less. And then you're done. But culturally, we will have things like Arabs will have an Azza, uh, we'll have Quran Khanis and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Is the, would you say the dirt on the. I forgot if that's that cultural. I forgot if that's cultural or that's. Some, that, that's an that's a American tradition. I mean, it is an American tradition, but I was, I was hearing from someone recently that it's also a practice uh, among Muslims. Oh, right? Okay. And so I don't know anymore for that point. But. Uh, culturally, uh, you'll have things like a Quran, Khani, Khatam Quran, right? Uh, but then you have Puritans will come along and say, okay, that's an innovation, okay? But what they don't realize they've done is they've removed a coping mechanism, okay? And, and so, like this term religious psychotherapy, that a number of these practices, whether they're originating in the generation of the Prophet, peace be upon him, or they've been developed later on, uh, a lot of these practices are. Uh, a type of psychotherapy, for lack of a better term, they're basically coping mechanisms. That what else happens in a Quran Khani? It's not just you read Quran. You have all these people who are coming forward and reading Quran, you know, uh, uh, towards your, or in favor of your loved one who's passed away. Okay, then it, makes, it becomes communal. And people come over and they bring food. And, you know, it's everyone's silent together, right? And so the point is that's a very, very important, important ritual mm-hmm. that Puritans take away is thinking it's an innovation and they have no clue what they're doing. They're actually damaging people that way. Because now how are you going to process this death? Except to say, well, God is going to take care of me, God is going to take care of me, God is going to take care of me. And that doesn't work. right? It only works if you have a very, very high level of Iman, which most people do not. Go. So a big part of religion is this term, it's, it's a clumsy term, but religious psychotherapy or religious therapy. Therapy through religion. Okay, so now let's talk about, about the sacraments, the 12th century. Thus, the 12th century theologian Hugh of St. Victor, responding to the question, What is a sacrament? first considers the conventional definition. A sacrament is a sign of a sacred thing. But then goes on to point out that it will not do, because various statutes and pictures, statues and pictures, as well as the words of Scripture, are all in different ways, in their different ways, Signs of sacred things without being sacraments. So he proposes a more adequate definition. A sacrament is a corporeal or material element. Sounds, gestures, vestments, instruments set before the senses without representing by similitude and signifying by institution and containing by sanctification some invisible and spiritual grace. So yeah, a lot of times these definitions seem long and complicated, but what is it basically saying? It's something that you can associate with your senses that seems to have some invisible 
meaning or relevance or authority or power, right? Some positive, uh, invisible thing uh, with it, right? And so, you know, the question that I often raise in, in my classes is that uh, when we're talking about something similar is that, okay, suppose we did all of Juma, but we did every single thing of Juma in reverse order, okay? So let's say you do, you do Dua, yeah, Chutbah number two, sit down, Chutbah number one, okay? And then, uh, oh, actually, no, that, that would be at the end. Yeah, you can yeah. start with And then, and then, and so you do all the steps of Salah. You have all the physical steps, but you do them in reverse order. So you start out sitting down. So you start out with your left Salam, yeah. right Salam, okay, then Durud, Tashahud, right, while sitting, and so forth and so on. Everything yeah. is backwards. So does that count as Jummah? You got all the steps. Obviously not, right? And like you're saying, Astaghfirullah, right? And so what we're saying is that if you do these specific things in this particular order, there is a meaning that is greater than these physical steps. Okay? So that's what he's saying is a sacrament. Okay? And, and so we're saying that there, there's an effect greater than these steps. So any Muslim will say, yeah, there's definitely an effect on the other side if you go through these steps in this way. And part of the point of, of fiqh is to figure out what are the proper steps. Okay. But the question is, is there also a benefit beyond the physical stretching in dunya? Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying beyond the benefit of stretching, beyond you know, just the, the regular practice of doing something, the type of balance or calmness that, that will give you, is there other benefit? Maybe. Because we do say that about things like avkar, about dhikr. Okay, continue. For example, the water of baptism represents the washing of sins from the soul by analogy with the washing of impurities from the body. Signifies it for the believer because of Christ's inaugurating practice and conveys by virtue of the words and actions of the officiating priest who performs the baptism, spiritual grace. Okay, so baptism um, is a physical process. You're washing, but what are you doing? Uh, You're washing the sins. Okay. That's baptism. And, and now you're purifying the person. Now think about wudu. If you, look at, if you do wudu from the perspective of cleaning, you'll probably be a lot more careless about it than if you do wudu from the perspective of worship. Because wudu is worship in the form of cleaning, right? And so, so if I'm just cleaning, I'll probably be just as haphazard as I am uh, if I'm washing my face. Splashing water left and right and such, and then I'm done. But if I'm looking at it from the perspective of worship, then I'm probably going to be a bit more meticulous in how I do it, especially at the edges of the wudu, meaning making sure I got my face, making sure I get my hands up to my, my, my wrists, my elbows, making sure I get the water up to my ankles. If I look at it as cleaning, then I'm going to be focused more on just getting these parts of my body wet. But if it's worship, then I'm going to make sure I have gotten water applied properly. And so that difference of meaning... Uh, we're saying can be the difference between heaven and hell. Yeah. The three functions are not self-evident, but must be identified and expounded by those in authority. Mm-hmm. Medieval Christians learned the meanings of elaborate allegories used in the Mass through authorized commentaries. Thus, according to Hugh, a sacrament from the moment of its authoritative foundation was a complex network of signifiers and signified acts that, like... Signifieds. Signifiers and signifieds that acts like an icon commemoratively. Okay, so, so think about Hajj. Uh, 
On the one hand, Hajj, uh, the core of Hajj is that you're at Arafat from this time to this time on this particular day at least once in your life. That's Hajj, right? But if you add what else is part of Hajj, that field is next to the hill where Ibrahim alayhi salam went to take Ismail, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that becomes an act of commemoration. Every step of Hajj is a commemoration of the story of Ibrahim, Hajar, Ismail, may Allah be, be peace be upon them. It's every step of it is also the story of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and his generation, uh, may peace be upon him, may Allah be pleased with them. So it's simultaneously commemoration. And what else? It's also a dress rehearsal for the Day of Judgment, right? Some say that's where the Day of Judgment is going to begin, Allah knows best. But the point is that you're dressed in your death shroud, right? And so it is also a dry run of the Day of Judgment, especially with the entire crowd of people, you know. And, and so the same point. <laughs> the icon is both itself and a sign of what is already present in the minds of properly disciplined participants. It points backwards to their memory and forward to their expectation as Christians. It does not make sense to say, with reference to the account Hugh gives, that in the sacraments, natural functions are endowed with supernatural authority, that is, a transcendent endowment. Still less that the sacraments are a psychotherapy for helping humans through their life crises. There's that point we made again, right? A useful myth. A useful myth. That a lot of these, these events are there to help you. Even look at Salah that way. That you're doing Salah day after day after day at its proper time. By creating a type of discipline, it is also giving you a type of stability. Mm-hmm. Right? That's why when you have new converts, you want to try to get them... Among all their different priorities, after you know, get, developing a consciousness of their aqidah and such, to get them into prayer, sooner the better. Because then you're giving them stability sooner rather than later. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah, let's finish off this paragraph. You insist that there are conditions in which the sacraments are not recognized for what they are. This is why the eyes of infidels who see only visible things despise venerating the sacraments of salvation. Because beholding in this only what is contemptible without invisible species, they do not recognize the invisible virtue within and the fruit of obedience. Okay, so yeah. <clears throat> so for the kafir, they don't see anything useful here. Okay? Even the fruit of obedience they, they can't see. They just see it as something contemptible. That's exactly what he's saying here. The authority of the sacraments is itself an engagement of the Christian subject with what his eyes see as an embodiment of divine grace. Grace is conceived of as a particular state of unawareness within a relationship, not as a divine payment for ritual assiduity. Yeah. So, so grace here, our, our closest thing to grace would either be baraka or rahma. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a payment for fulfilling your ritual. Um, and this is what happens. Some people say, well, I obey, I pray, and then why do all these things happen to me? And then they have the mindset that, okay, by praying, they're paying off, you know, their... Say a contract or something. Yeah, exactly. Like Allah Ta'ala then owes them not to put them through struggle. But then we also say that if Allah loves you, He's going to give you difficulty, which means that if you're better better at your prayers, you might have a more difficult life. Right? But the point is that this is not a payment. You know. Okay, let's stop right here on page 35, and then inshallah, uh, we'll continue from there. Any last questions or thoughts? All right. Well, akhirat da'wana, and alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, nasafiru kuna tubi ilaik.